And then it ended up being tonight, which is actually absolutely perfect timing because she is, to me, a Black Lives Matter warrior uh, way ahead of her time. She was an African, a Libyan goddess. And I feel like this time is absolutely perfect to talk about her legacy and how it was suppressed and how, once again, she was like the angry black woman uh, doing amazing things, but then they changed her story to make her a victim instead of a warrior and a goddess. Yeah, and I mean, and we even had the goddess, uh, I think it, uh, I forget now whether it was Artemis or Athena, I think it was Artemis, uh, even turned against her uh, in the retelling of the myth. Um, you know, where mm-hmm. where does the patriarchal version of her myth uh, differ from the original version of her myth, Trista? Well, it's really interesting because actually Athena, who is um, supposedly turned against her, uh, Laura Shannon, who is brilliant and does a lot of like dance therapy and um, uh, I mean, she's just also a brilliant writer. She has an, an essay in this uh, anthology and it's all about uh, Athena, Athena, sorry, uh, Athena and Medusa and how they actually are, um, in the patriarchal narrative, they're turned against each other, but in reality, they uh, are, I would say, sisters that help each other heal. And um, she calls it ancient allies and healing women's trauma, and she gets into this whole idea about uh, our pain and our rage and all these horrible things that happen to many of us, um, Medusa, when she's frozen, has this trauma response, and a lot of us have that. You know, I've had things that have happened to me where I froze and I couldn't do anything. So she also fits into the fact that Medusa is also, she's not only a terrorizer, as I think a lot of uh, patriarchal myths uh, paint her, but she's also traumatized, and she's dealing out of that pain body of being raped. And... Uh, yeah, I can, I'm babbling a bit, but uh, yeah, I mean the whole the whole narrative is turned upside down by patriarchy. It's turned into this very anti-woman, uh, angry. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I was totally freaked out. I don't even know what I saw, but I remember seeing some movie like in the '80s with Medusa, and I just thought she was the scariest thing ever. And also, until recently. Uh, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, I did not realize that Medusa was a black woman. And we've so whitewashed Medusa. I mean, most of the images you see are of a white Medusa. But in fact, she was not white. Uh, So, I mean, I think there's so many parallels to what's going on right now and so many things being uh, whitewashed or covered up or uh, made into more palatable terms. But Medusa was not a palatable woman at all yeah yeah uh it well and and look and and no and you weren't rambling you were making perfect sense and uh i and honestly when i heard you say that about medusa being a black woman i had not heard that either um i i really didn't you know she uh, you know her story takes place in greece and uh you know we 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 don't imagine uh, I, I think um, African women necessarily uh, in Greece, you know, not that, you know, Greece is that far from Africa, but still, you know, it's a Greek myth. Um, and so, but what I'm thinking too, you know, I love that, that analogy, you know, that when uh, she, you know, she freezes, it's, um, you know, sort of a metaphor for some t- how, sometimes, you know, how we react uh, to our own trauma. And I guess I would also say, um, you know, I mean, it, it's probably obvious, but I'm thinking, you know, the snakes on her head, I mean, snakes are always about uh, transformation and how we have mm-hmm. to uh, transform and evolve out of that uh, place of trauma or place of inequality, place of oppression, uh, place of patriarchy. Um, and it's not, it's, you know, it's ugly, you know, just like the protesters mm-hmm. on the street. You know, it's not always clean and neat. Um, you know, it's kind of like they say government is like making sausages and it's ugly and messy and nobody likes to see the ugly but you uh, sometimes transformation 
um, is ugly. But but I, I do want to ask you the mirror um, in the myth. You know, she's got the mirror that she, you know, turn, uh, turns on anyone who looks at her. Um, what's the symbology there? Because I, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 and, and I mean, you know, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. Uh, I mean, I don't know that I ever learned the symbology of that mirror. And, and you know, uh, where, how does that fit into sort of our goddess spirituality ideology? Well, I'm sure that there's quite a few different ways that you could look at that mirror. And I think several uh, different people in the anthology gave their take on it. For me, what the mirror is, is turning it on the person who's oppressing you in whatever way and letting them clearly see themselves, which is, I think, especially pertinent right now, that so many people are unwilling to actually look at themselves and their part in racism, their part in sexism, uh, whatever it might be, but to me that mirror is um, forcing the other person to see their reflection and having them actually take an honest assessment uh, in their part in things. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and, and I'm thinking, too, it also reminds me uh, potentially of, you know, sympathetic mirror magic where, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't want to actively – um, you know, send negative energy at someone, you use mirror magic, and what happens is whatever they, you know, when they, uh, uh, you know, they, they get back the reflection of themselves. So if they're putting ugliness out into the world, you know, brutality, oppression, uh, you know, it, whatever ugly they're putting out, they, it, they will have it reflected back on them. And, you know, maybe you could almost say, you know, when these people are turned to stone, um, you know, they're sort of mm-hmm. victims of their 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 own um, crimes, uh, if you will. Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of how I see the, uh, witchcraft in general, is that um, when you put out a spell or a hex or something, it can only bring back whatever evil that person has brought upon themselves. I've, I've had friends ask about uh, hexing. <laughs> Uh, people that really didn't do anything. And I'm like, okay, what are you trying to do? Because that's not the point. Uh, You can't actually hex someone who hasn't done something wrong. Uh, To me, it's just karma coming back on that person and maybe bringing about a bit quicker. But it's not, uh, my opinion anyway, uh, is that uh, it's not meant to be like doing harm to people who haven't done harm. Uh, It's just about people actually facing consequences and seeing maybe sooner the reality of what their actions have done to other people. Yeah, and I mean, and I actually... Opening their eyes, I'm sure people... Yeah, yeah, and I and I mean I'm sure there are people who disagree with me. I, I know there are discussions on Facebook about it, but you know I don't really see myself. Um, I haven't been convinced yet that uh, mirror magic is a hex because really all you're doing is holding up the mirror, and they're just getting back what they put out. So they are the instigator yeah. of whatever comes back to them, and that would likewise work with good things. You know, if you put good mm-hmm. things out. You'd get good things back, kind of like our idea of if you are uh, have gratitude, uh, you know that opens the space for gratitude to come back at you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. To me, it all it, it's all sort of the same thing. Where if you focus on negativity all the time, you're going to probably you know get negativity back in your life. Maybe um, it's, I don't know. I, I kind of see it um, yeah. similarly. Well, to me, there's a natural order of the world anyway that works that way. Uh, but I I see hexing, I don't see it in a negative sense. I mean, I'm sure it can be used that way, but I see it as an empowerment tool for women where if you've been victimized to feel empowered to call upon the goddess or whatever, you know, force you would like to, but to feel like you have uh, an opportunity to call for justice because I think so often women don't feel that and they just feel hopeless. And I know for me that has been helpful in my healing to just feel like somebody is listening because growing up in the church, uh, they're not listening. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, um, 
a different way of looking at things, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, the status quo wants to keep the status quo, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. they're, you know, they aren't they aren't going to listen to any of the complaints and uh, and, and you know, and, and I think when it comes to women's rage, um, I mean, I grew up in the South, a Catholic, and you know, we were always told, you know, women had to be nice and hospitable. Uh, I mean, it was an ugly thing to be angry. Uh, I mean, you were not mm-hmm. looked upon as a, you know, a nice girl, a nice woman if you, um, you know, showed anger, even if it was uh, if it was righteous anger, um, and. Uh, you know, shoot. I mean, I, I mean, I was born in '57, uh, so you know, I'm talking about, you know, I'm experiencing this in the South in the '60s and the '70s. But you know, I just experienced that, um, you know, less than five years ago at the hands of a of a guy who was supposed to be a feminist man who told me, "Oh, I like your ISIS side, but I don't like your Sekhmet side." Um, you know, it, it feels mm-hmm. like men have a real problem with women. You know, when they become that warrior, that Medusa, you know, when they show that anger, um, you know, what what do you think that's about? Well, I think it's really easy to control anyone who's not allowed to feel rage, and that goes the same for women or people of color. You know, it's not acceptable to uh, be angry. And, you know, like this whole thing, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't get all the news here, to be honest, and I don't follow all the news as much as I maybe could or should. But in terms of, like, the rioting and everything, uh, one of the best memes I saw was, like, the only real riots I've seen is, like, the government sending out $1,200 stimulus checks to Americans while they're basically uh, making large corporations even richer, you know? Like, they're looting. They're the ones who are actually looting from us. Uh, And not to say that I support rioting or uh but i think there's a reason why people are rioting and you know some of it i think has been taken over by uh other groups for sure um but i think it's just disallowed for and i would say especially women to be angry it's just not okay well, well, yeah. I mean, one of the um, uh, one of the people interviewed uh, this past week um, said that um, you know the administration, the status quo, uh, they they want people to be passive, and uh, mm-hmm. you know they, they want you know they want them to protest, but they don't want to see any anger or shaming or loudness. You know, uh, and it's, I don't know, and it just feels like this is the very same thing, Um, you know, because it's easier to put down, isn't it? You know, it's easier to squash out and ignore um, if, uh, you know, you you play that passive doormat role. Well, yeah, because, okay, for instance, uh, if you say, uh, I was sexually abused, as a child that has such a different connotation than yelling, I was raped. And nobody wants to hear that. It's much more, the first part is much more acceptable than to actually say what the reality is. And so I think we have so much of this um, numbing down of reality when it comes especially to females or people of color that we're not really allowed to say the full, you know, uh, extent of how we are actually feeling. Uh, It's just not okay. It's like we have to make it more palatable for even the people that abused us. Well, and, and, you know, the other, another idea along these lines too is um, I heard the phrase this week, uh, and I don't think I heard it before, is how white people weaponize their fear. Now, you know, I've mm-hmm. heard the idea, a, a good friend of mine taught me the term white women's tears, and what that mm-hmm. was about was, you know, how white women 
um, Sayon, you know, kind of like clutch their pearls uh, so that they don't have to deal with anything uncomfortable. So the ugly stuff never gets brought up. It stays, you know, uh, it, it, it stays buried. And, uh, and, and I kind of think, you know, this idea of, you know, white people weaponizing their fear is uh, a little bit of uh, maybe why um, the police get away with what they, you know, get away with, you know, because, you know, maybe mm-hmm. white people are so afraid, you know, huddled in their little house like the president in his bunker in the White House, um, and, uh, you know, that, that fear uh, is, is used against, you know, whether we're talking about the protesters or whether we're talking about women and patriarchy. Um, I don't know. It just feels like it all fits together. But, you know, this is also why we can't heal, because if you can't feel, you can't heal. And, like, for me, uh, this year has been extraordinary in terms of, like, facing my own uh, traumas and abuse and fears and things that I didn't want to deal with that I would only kind of let myself feel halfway. And, you know, it's been a process because I really, other than, like, once in my 20s, I didn't really express any rage until I was 38 years old, and then I felt that, but I never actually let myself feel the full extent of being a child sex abuse victim until this year, and it was like the worst night of my life, but I finally felt it, and I felt all of it, and I honestly just felt like I wanted to die, but when it was done, I was finally done. I was finally like, okay, this is something that happened to me. It's not something I have to carry with me every single day of my life. So I think this thing about not feeling, it seems like it's a good idea and like it will save us and, you know, like it will make life more palatable, but it actually just makes it so we're kind of just walking around half dead most of the time. And until we actually feel everything, I don't think we can actually heal everything. I, I think that uh, that really makes a lot of sense because otherwise, you know, you're just sort of stuffing it. You're not dealing with it. Um, you know, that's the, our shadow side that we're, you know, we're, we're not, um, you know, we haven't found the courage yet to look at. And, and um, yeah, I, I, because, I mean, let's face it, who wants to, who wants to feel pain and misery and relive that all again, you know? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but. It, and we think if we just stuff it, it goes away, but uh, it comes back. It comes back in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, it, it might even have been you and I. We were uh, talking about how children of alcoholism, uh, you know, you, you think maybe because you got away from your alcoholic parents, um, you know, you're, you're okay now, but you don't realize the mm-hmm. wounds and scars that you picked up um, affect the decisions you make, you know, later in life, you know, mm-hmm. so you, so you got to take it out and look at it, you know, otherwise it, it's going to haunt you some, some sort of a way. Um, but, but, you know, getting back to Medusa, well, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You were about to say something. Well, I, I, I was just going to say something because uh, my children's father died of alcoholism. And one thing in terms of, I know we were going to get here, and it was more towards the end of the show, but in terms of raising children different is that uh, they've shown in so many alcoholic families, and I think it's in many dysfunctional families, that children are not allowed to feel or show their emotions or yeah, even like acknowledge what's actually happening for them. So one thing that I've done with my kids and that I think is really important and sometimes is not easy, especially when you have teenagers, is to say, like, you can feel or say whatever you need to say. You can't disrespect me. I'm not going to put up with that. But you have a right to own what's happening and to say. And even with me, like, if you don't like what I'm doing, then tell me. And, you know, we can have an honest conversation about that. But I think so many kids are encouraged to stuff it, and it starts early. And so that's why I think, like, going forward, it's really important to raise kids in an environment where they can actually speak freely. And, uh, you know, we're the adults. We have to actually be tough when it comes to our kids and, like, be able to accept that we're not perfect and we screw up a lot and that kids are completely entitled to their own feelings about things. And even if maybe we don't even think we're doing something wrong, 
uh, almost every parent does something at some point that hurts their children. So I think, in my mind, it's much better to have an open dialogue when they're younger rather than have them deal with it 20 years later and finally be able to say, like, oh, you know, you did this and it really hurt me. That's 20 years of stuffing it down. So I think uh, one of the most important ways for me uh, to change things is to change how we raise kids and to allow them to have more freedom and uh, being honest with their feelings. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And um, it, because, you know, it, because then, you know, it sort of gets into this, um, it, it, it becomes family secrets too, you know. And uh, I, I, I know I've been reading some stuff um, that people have sent me, um, you know, about how as children they had to keep the family secret about maybe their grandfather who uh, molested, uh, you know, grandchildren or, you know, things like like that and um, it, you know and, and that takes a toll um, you know on people you know for, for the rest of their lives and uh, it I think it kind of then puts in motion you know this uh, you know a, a, a loop you know where then that's how they raise their kids and that's how they deal with things with secrets you know and uh, so we just kind of keep perpetuating this unhealthy a way of uh, of being in the world and dealing with uh, with problems and you know imagine all the little girls out there who had been you know molested or raped if they could have just screamed out uh, you know what what happened to them you know rather than um, you know then then keep it secret. Well, yeah, and that's the problem too. And girls are still not taken seriously at all when they actually even do have the bravery to come forward. Uh, someone was just telling me today here in Norway about a little girl who went, uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but she, uh, there was a police, police report made and saying, like, you, uh, my dad is um, kissing me down there and he's forcing me to kiss him down there. And then, you know, they had different witnesses, but basically the police were like, oh, the kids say the strangest things and then released her back to uh, her father's custody, <laughs> which is like, uh, no, kids tell the truth, and that's not, you know, if a kid says that to you, you should take them seriously. They're not uh, making that up, and I think we should listen to kids much more than we do. Like, it's, it's uh, insane to me because, in my mind, uh, children don't lie about that. They Children are extremely honest, at times painfully honest, and we... To not listen to them is uh, just so so horrible. Well, and, and you know, I've I've come into a theory, uh, Trista. I, you know, um, you know, because of um, you know some workplace things, um, you know, I've been in, and you know, I've worked with, you know, with other people, and you know, we have not. Uh, spoken, you know, we didn't speak about stuff that was happening in the workplace, and um, and you know, and, and I started thinking, well, you know, maybe we didn't because um, it, that might mean we'd have to do something about it, and mm-hmm. maybe you're not prepared to do something about it, you know, uh, emotionally, financially, um, whatever, you know, uh, you're afraid you're going to lose your job if you try to do something about it. Um, uh, you know, in, in that situation you described, um, you know, I, I still think when it comes to sexuality, there's so many taboos around it. Um, you know, it's like it's uncomfortable. Um, it, and I don't know, you. I mean, it's like how we can't see um, coffins of soldiers coming home from the war with flags on them because it, it might, uh, you know, tweak our sensibilities some kind of a way so it's hidden from us. You know, um, it, I don't know. It, it feels like we're really kind of conditioning ourselves uh, to be numb or to be weak and not really mm-hmm. be able to face reality, you know? Well, I mean, if anybody saw the actual causalities of war, or not, what do I, I think? The, the effect of war, nobody would be for war. Like, if you saw all the soldiers that had to come home, you would say no more. If you saw all the people that we've killed in Iraq, Afghanistan, 
all the countries, all everything that we've destroyed, uh, nobody would be okay with it anymore unless they were a complete psychopath. And it's the same with sexual abuse. Like, and I think that's what has been so good about me too. Is like all these women speaking up. Uh, you can't just ignore it anymore. And like, I think it was a week ago the a new documentary came out on, a, or docu series came out on a, a Jeffrey, uh, is it Epstein? I don't know. Um, yeah, that Jeffrey Epstein. I don't like. Yeah. I, I don't like to think about jerks, so I kind of like lose their names from my memory. But anyway, uh, I didn't know if I wanted to watch that or not, but I'm glad I did because it gave so many of his victims a chance to speak and really say like what he did to him or did to them. And also, um, one of the things that I think the judge did really well is even after um, he whatever he died or whatever happened to him, uh, a lot of them lost the potential to be able to have their day in court. And the judge still allowed uh, several of the victims to come and give a statement. And many of them said that was so healing for them. And I think it is really important to, uh, to be heard because I think healing a lot of times comes from people hearing you because so often people don't want to hear it. And then you spend so long feeling like nobody cares and you actually don't get all this crap out of you. Whereas if you can say this is what happened and have people actually listen and affirm you, it's so much more healing. It's a completely different experience. Well, and, and, and let's kind of let that be a segue, um, you know, back to Medusa, you know, from monster to divine wisdom. Um, is, is, is that really what's at the crux of, uh, of, you know, how we go from monster to wisdom with, uh, with Medusa? Yeah, I think uh, for me, in my opinion, yes. I think it's being heard, being seen, uh, I think it's so easy to demonize um, women for what's happened to them because the natural response, especially if no one's listening to you, you are angry (laughs) and uh, maybe you lash out in ways that people decide are not acceptable. Uh, I disagree. I think when you uh, have been victimized and hurt, the natural response is to actually do something to try to shake it out of your body in a way. Uh, But we don't really have healthy response mechanisms in place in the West anymore. So uh, I think she's a very good archetype for women uh, in terms of coming to their own healing and finding different ways of going about it. Well, yeah, and uh, something you you just said made me think about how, uh, you know, women are even forced to, um, cover their bodies uh, and thereby, you know, feeling shame about their bodies as if there's something that they need to hide. Really, when uh, it's about men not being held accountable for their own lust, um, mm-hmm. you know that that you know that feels like part of this too. Uh, you know, you know how women have to go through their life. And, uh, and and not even be able to embrace their own body in a healthy way, um, you know, because of the, uh, you know, the shortcomings and, and failures of religion or society or men, the, the patriarchy, you know, that, that word nobody likes us to say because that in itself, you know, conjures up, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, you know, that it's, I don't know, it's almost kind of a word of Medusa, isn't it? Or Sekhmet or the more again, because, you know, you're calling it out, you know, you're saying, uh, you know, why things are the way they are. I mean, I remember there was an, an, uh, these women journalists who said that they couldn't even write articles about the patriarchy because nobody mm-hmm. would print it, you know, because nobody mm-hmm. wanted to hear it. And, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's uh, another one of those taboos almost. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this goes beyond Medusa. I think this is inclusive of all goddess uh, spirituality. But, I mean, you I, I don't need to tell you this, but uh, sexuality is so different in goddess traditions than Christianity, especially where it's shame-based. Uh, 
in goddess traditions, it's about joy. It's about mutual orgasm and respect and love and ecstasy. And, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day about pornography, and I'm like, if people actually embraced how good sexuality could be under uh, goddess traditions, where it's about love and beautiful lovemaking and ecstasy and just joy, uh, Porn would become irrelevant because it has nothing to do with that. I mean, it's so much deeper. And, like, we've kind of just made everything like the McDonald's version of sex. Uh, I mean, I know very few women that are happy in their sex lives, and it pains me to say that. But I think that uh, we're so focused on patriarchal values that we don't value female sexuality. And I think that's a huge a piece of women actually uh, becoming free again because orgasms are important. I think women should have orgasms every day. Several, like uh, women are so <laughs> starved sexually. It's it's really like, and this probably just seems like a not that important right now, but I I do think that orgasms are extremely important for females and that we have really lost the importance of how beautiful female sexuality is and it's sacred. And uh, until we come back to that, I'm not sure that we're going to go forward with many other things either. I mean, I think that's a huge part of the healing of humanity. Well, I, I, I agree, and, uh, and 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 while I think it's important unto itself, you know, I think it's a reflection of our culture, you know, that we've been told the noble thing is to suffer and sacrifice, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to have pleasures of the body, uh, you know, is uh, you know that that doesn't. It, I think that's a that's a Christian belief, you know, pleasures of the body mm-hmm. are evil. I mean, I, I mean that's been going on for for hundreds of years. And, you know, even pleasure, uh, pleasure in, in mm-hmm. and of itself, you know, uh, if you're not working from dusk till dawn, then somehow you're, uh, you're, you're not being a good person, uh, you know, to look for pleasure is, I don't know, it, it, uh, it I, I don't know, I'm really upset with society and its inability to embrace pleasure and say, what about your quality of life? You know, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a, a good sex life is in there. Um, God, we're so messed up. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, um, Trista, I want to talk about, um, you know, how we go about reprogramming ourselves, you know, how we can use the Medusa archetype to, you know, maybe heal that, um, you know, that, that deep trauma, maybe how we invoke Medusa in our lives uh, as a source uh, of power. Um, that sound good to you? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, uh, but first, um, here's a word from Joe Carson, and we'll be back on the other side. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, 
and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Personally, um, I do have a copy of Dancing with Gaia. It is a great film, and it does come with a um, a 45-page color mini book uh, that accompanies it, and um, it's at a great price. Um, So you you really should check that out. It's something you would want to have in your library, and uh, you can find it at uh, uh, dancingwithgaia.com. And uh, just one little bit of uh, housekeeping before we get back to um, the interview here with Trista Hendren uh, talking about uh, uh, revisioning Medusa from Monster to Divine Wisdom. Uh, The next show is going to be Friday, um, and then pretty soon we're going to be back on track every Wednesday at 11. Uh, But I will be with you next Friday, uh, uh, June 12th at 11 a.m., and I'll have Luke Eastwood with me. Uh, We're going to be talking about taking a Gnostic path, taking a Gnostic path. So, Trista, um, let's, uh, you know, take it back to Medusa a bit. And, you know, we've been talking about, you know, all the symptoms and wounds and numbing and uh, and all of that. But, uh, you know, goddess is so often an archetype to help us uh, heal and get through these things. Um, how uh, how do you explain to someone um, how the archetype of Medusa can be used uh, to maybe heal uh, that deep trauma or, you know, reprogram ourselves? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we all heal in different ways. There's uh, One thing I, I do like about anthologies is that you have a variety of different voices and people see things from a different lens and have different ways. There were uh, several women that talked about, like, um, reattachment ceremonies where they reattached Medusa's head and there was uh, one very big one, uh, I guess, that happened in Italy. And I'm very, very bad at pronouncing uh, pronouncing names, so I'll probably totally butcher her name. But uh, you you might know uh, know it better than mine. Uh, Marguerite, do you know what I'm talking Rigoliosa? about? Rigoliosa? Uh, yeah, yes, I cannot say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she has an essay in here about uh, a, a reattachment ceremony in um, in Italy, and Kali Cargill also does her own personal one uh, where she makes her own mask. But there were a lot of women that talked about making Medusa masks, and I think we talked about this in a previous show about Lauren Rain and her masks that she makes. She has a whole uh, 20-year series uh, that she did with uh, Mask of the Goddess. And that's one thing I've told her is like I one day I want to commission you to make me a Medusa mask because I think uh, I've, I've seen a lot of women do either headpieces, masks, um, all different things to kind of like reconnect with her energy and like restoring her um, because obviously she was uh, beheaded, which is atrocious, you know. But I think so many of us are also beheaded in so many different ways from the time we're like very, very little girls. So I think just reenacting, I think ritual can be so powerful. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, and, uh, it, and I, you know, I just realized we kind of skipped over an important piece of all of this. Um, speak about the Medusa uh, uh, anthology in the Girl Guide series. Um, you know, we're just kind of assuming the audience knows, and uh, we shouldn't do that. So, um, you know, tell them about the anthology a bit. Well, uh, it actually started with Glynis Livingstone had written this book that had been just like sitting in a drawer, I think for 20 years, uh, a children's book about Medusa. And she mentioned it to me and I'm like, oh, I love that idea. So we did a children's book first and that's kind of what sparked off this whole series. So we've done uh, children's books and then uh, followed up with adult anthologies. 
Uh, so Medusa was the first one, and we did uh, revisioning, revisioning a Medusa from Monster to Divine Wisdom. And I think we have about 45 different women from around the world uh, who shared art, essays, uh, academic papers, poetry. Um, and it's uh, to me, it's really interesting. I mean, like, uh, I might do my anthologies a bit different than other people because I don't mind if people contradict each other. I think that is what makes it interesting as an anthology is, like, that there's so many different ways of looking at things. So... Um, that uh, that was our first one. Then we did Anana, uh, Lilith. Uh, we're working on Isis now, and we have many, many more in the works. But I really like working on one in particular and really focusing in on that goddess. Okay. Do you have a favorite so far? Oh, uh well, it's probably a tie between Medusa and uh, Lilith. Although I'm really excited about the Isis anthology that we're working on now. So I don't know. I, I think I have so many, every, almost every book is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm sure they, they all have their, uh, you know, their, their standout moments, you know, um, you know, things that, things that make them exceptional. Um, well, Trista, um, uh, I'm wondering if uh, I, I, I do want to ask you about, uh, you know, the politics in Norway there, uh, but uh, I, I do want to give you a chance if, if I haven't uh, asked you, um, you know, anything about the anthology or Medusa that, um, you know, you feel needs to be said, you know, I want to give you the chance to, um, you know, to speak to that. Ah, oh, no, I mean, I mean, there's a lot here, and to be honest, it's, uh, I'm quite a bit ahead of you in time, so it's uh, later at night for me, and I have had, like, a very bad, uh, I hope I'm not rambling too much, but I have very bad back pain right now, so I feel like I'm a little bit out of it. <laughs> Well, no, I, I, I think you've, uh, in spite of that, uh, you, you've, uh, you've done a good job and, and I think, um, you know, conveyed, um, you know, this idea of uh, Medusa from monster to, uh, to, to divine wisdom, you know, the archetype we all need to help us heal ourselves. Uh, you know, I, I think you've, you've conveyed it well. Um, you know, because basically, you know, I think when it, it just comes down to the idea, you know, we embody Medusa. You know, uh, her pain mm -hmm. is our pain, and, um, you know, we, we've talked about how important it is to rewrite our sacred stories. And, you know, we, in, when we give Medusa a better ending than the patriarchal uh, ending she got, uh, in doing so, we, we give it to ourselves as well. And I, and I think that's the wisdom of it, in a way, you know, that... Uh, we we do have the power, despite um, you know maybe so many messages we get in life uh, that uh, we're powerless. Um, you know, I, I think when we realize we are empowered and we're powerful, that's where maybe the source of where our wisdom starts to to come from. Um, at least that's what mm -hmm. it means to me. I'm sure there are lots of other ways to interpret it, but. Um, but uh, uh, do tell me, um, you know, how is Norway responding to what's happened over here? I, I mean, I know in Germany, um, Angela Merkel told Trump she wasn't going to come to the G7 uh, meeting. You know, uh, the word was that uh, Trump was trying to, you know, Trump, Trump's trying to put a spin that there's no pandemic happening, life is normal, and she basically, you know, gave him the middle finger and said, no, I won't be coming to that, so he canceled it. And, um <laughs> Uh, uh, and, and there was, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like I, I should be living in Germany right now. You know, there's, there was a, a, a newspaper article that showed Trump uh, standing there with a match with the protesters in the background, you know, with the implication that, you know, instead of uh, being the voice of unity, instead he's flowing, throwing a match on the flame. Um, how is, you know, how is uh, Norway responding to uh, everything going on here, or do they even care? I mean, <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess I just wonder how the world is seeing Trump. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, I would say many Norwegians care a lot. And uh, our prime minister kind of made some unfortunate comments that I don't even really want to repeat here. But in general, uh, we we had protests on Friday, and uh, many, many people wanted to come. I know it was like over 9,000 people wanted to come in Bergen, and then we were kind of scared off from going and said, oh, because of coronavirus, which is a bit ridiculous because we really don't have much coronavirus, especially in Bergen. Uh, it's only limited to 50 people. And everybody, well, not everybody, but many people said, we're coming anyway. Uh, I think there were well over 1,000 people there, including uh, the well-known singer Aurora, uh, who just came. I had no idea she was even there. She just went in normal clothes and didn't make a scene, and they happened to see her there. And what she said I thought was so great because uh, when they asked her about it, uh, she said, I'm very ashamed that Norway has not dealt with this until now and taken on this fight. Uh, Oslo there was, is a much bigger city, and but they had a huge turnout, and I can't remember exactly how many people it was, but it, it really shocked me. Uh, it was a huge number. I know on the Facebook page I think it said like 54,000 people wanted to go. I know it wasn't that high, but I want to say it was about – 25,000, which is for Norway. Uh, I, I'm not aware of any other protests with that many people in attendance uh, for anything. Um, and then I know there were other protests uh, throughout Norway. Um, but the, Norway and Bergen are the, or Oslo and Bergen are the two largest cities. And, and I think that, uh, especially considered that we were really uh, discouraged from coming, that it was a phenomenal uh, number of people that showed up. So, well, and, and I know I'm showing my ignorance here. You know, here in the United States, we just don't get much coverage of especially Scandinavian countries. Um, is, mm-hmm. uh, are there many people of color there? I mean, is, the, is there racism there, like racism here in the United States? Yes. There's a lot of racism here, uh, and I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, I actually even saw it firsthand in some of the groups that I was, that I'm a part of here. That uh, uh, a man was basically really mocking my friend of color and. was horrible to her, even though he actually went to one of the protests. Uh, it was really disgusting to see, and then he ended up removing uh, his post after I kind of said my piece. But um, there's a lot of racism here, and, and I know at the uh, rally in Bergen, they addressed that. They they have a lot of work to do. Uh, even since I've been coming here, like nine years ago, I think it's really changed. There's a lot more people of color now. There's a lot more Muslims. There's people from all over the world. They've taken in some refugees. So the cities are changing, and I think that's actually a really, really positive thing. Um, But, yeah, there's a lot of work to do here for sure. Um, well, you you might not have heard, but uh, I'm. It, it looked like, and I think it actually happened. Uh, they've actually pulled down two Confederate monuments. Uh, one in Richmond, which was the heart of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. and another one in one of the cities in in Alabama. So. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I think if I was a white supremacist or a white nationalist, um, I would uh, be worried that, um, you know, my days of tyranny were coming to an end. Um, but in a way, uh, that worries me, too, because um, how might that cause them to lash out, you know, when they, I mean, let's face it, they're not passive people. Um, you know, that, that does worry me a bit. You know, even even Trump, you know, his numbers are crashing, and I wonder how much mm-hmm. damage you could potentially do uh, before November. And, um, uh, you know, and Bill Maher has been saying for a long time, you know, what if he won't leave the White House? What if he tries to get his 40% behind him uh, and says, um, uh, you know, it, the election was a fake, you know? Um, I, I, I think it's going to be um, a wild ride through the end of the year. But um, I, astrologically, though, I think uh, things are 
on our side. It it just might be a wild ride. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, with someone like him, you really he's a wild card. I mean, you, you, no one has any idea what, what he's going to do or even what he's capable of. I mean, I don't even think he knows. Like, I think he's very uh, insane. Like, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to know, but, uh, and I hope he's not going to well, be elected a second time, but I, I do have to wonder, to be honest, because I still see a lot of Trump support. So I, I don't know. Well, you know, well, they they say that, uh, you know, he's standing at about uh, 45%, which is amazing considering how uh, he's failed yeah. with the pandemic. Uh, but, you know, even the pandemic has become political. Um, you know, they were showing statistics that uh, – uh, the likelihood uh, you were, uh, you know, if you don't wear a mask, in all likelihood you are a Trump supporter. If you do wear a mask, you're a Biden supporter. And I mean, and I can tell that by social media, you know, as well. Uh, but they are saying that he's tanking in really key uh, demographics. Um, the more educated you are, the less likely you're going to vote for him. Uh, he's losing popularity among uh, among men, actually, uh, senior citizens, and I forgot what the other demographic is. But um, look, you know, I, call me a cynic, but it worries me that even if uh, he loses the Electoral College, somehow the fix will be in, you know, uh, that's, that's what really worries me, you know, but, um, you know, what can we do? Uh, we're, you know, people it worries like us me are doing that he still has a 45. Uh, yeah. It worries me that he, yeah, but his, his approval ratings are still that high. Like, I mean, cause I mean, I, I don't live there anymore, obviously, but from here, it's just like, he just looks like a psychopath and, uh, it's hard to believe that that many people still support him. Well, I, I know, I, I know. And, uh, you know, I kept thinking that as the coronavirus makes its way into more red states in a bigger way, um, maybe that will change. I mean, we have 110,000 um, dead now, you know, um, and uh, he's, he's, he's done with the virus. You know, it's like it, uh, uh, it, um, you know, it, 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 it's gone. Uh, I mean, he's literally told people uh, to be warriors, go out there and, you know, go to work, go buy things, um, you know, be a warrior, Mr. Bonespur, you know, uh, go die for the economy. Um, it, it's incredible, really. It's incredible. I, I mean, like you, I, I can't believe his support is not at like 10%. Uh, it, it really mm-hmm. makes me worry about the, you know, what's at the core of uh of americans these days um it, but i don't know i i guess the election will tell you know uh i mean maybe mm-hmm. he doesn't really have that much support um you know we we shall see i i just hope um I, I hope things get worse for him. I know a lot of people, a lot of Republicans have started to come out against him. And if we could, uh, if if there could potentially be a, um, uh, you know, more of that, you know, um, then then maybe, uh, you know, it will change some people's minds. I, I, I don't know. We'll We'll just have to see. But it's not looking good for him, and that's a good thing. So, yeah. Are you there? Uh-oh. Did I lose you?
That's so bizarre. Hello? Am I still? Well, I am so sorry, uh, everyone. Uh, we uh, we had a, a malfunction there. Uh, I want to uh, thank you if you uh, stayed on the line until I could come back and uh, give you an appropriate uh, goodbye and uh, an apology for that uh, technical glitch. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning into the show. Uh, we are at the end uh, of, of today's um, uh, interview with uh, Trista Hendren. Oh, uh, Trista is actually back. Um want to thank her for... Uh, Trista, hi. Thank you for calling back in. Hi. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened, but suddenly I was I couldn't hear you anymore, so I uh, just um, called back you, in. You know, I, 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 you know, I don't really know what happened either, and it took me a, a minute or two to actually get reconnected, but um, I, was, I was just sort of wrapping up the show, uh, you know, uh, thanking folks uh, for staying in there uh, with us and, until we could uh, – you know, get reconnected here to do a proper goodbye. Um, but, uh, you know, is is there anything you'd like to say uh, in closing today, um, you know, a, a, about Medusa, or the anthologies? Um, you know, um, I, I, I turn it over to you uh, for a close. Uh, yeah, well, no, I mean, just thank you so much for having me, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I was going to say also, because you're in the ISIS anthology, uh, and you sent me that amazing um, uh, essay from your book, Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddesses on, or Goddess on Planet Earth, that uh, I just want to encourage people to check out your work as well, because you have so many jewels, and you've given so much to all of us, and um, I just want to honor you for that. So thank you again for having me. Oh, well, thank you, Trista. That's so kind of you. Um, I'm actually going to start um, uh, reminding people about the uh, three anthologies I have out there. I call them a Manifesting a New Normal uh, trilogy. Um, I'm, I'm going to be sharing them on Facebook again, uh, Goddess 2.0, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, uh, and uh, Awaken the Feminine, because, you know, I, I feel like uh, if we don't have... Uh, ideas about where to take this world, then we stay stuck. And, uh, you know, books like yours and books like mine and, uh, you know, so many other, I think, foremothers and way showers, uh, you know, they help us plot a path. I mean, um, you know, Rian Eisler and Merlin Stone, I think, were the two uh, most influential people to me in my life. And it was so interesting um, when I heard Trump uh, saying on the news, we must dominate uh, the space or whatever he called it. But he kept using the word dominate, dominate, dominate. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because, you know, Rian Eisler has been writing about a dominant Dominator versus partnership society, and uh, mm-hmm. and and it was like, and we knew it, we live it, but you know there was something about hearing him use the word, you know, uh, I mean it it, uh, it it felt like it was hitting me between the eyes like a a two by four, you know, um, if mm-hmm. if we ever, you know, if we ever had any doubts, um, you know, it, it, we 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 see it in the White House. You know, it's not just on the street corner, you know, but it was on in the White House, you know, from the top down. And uh, I don't know, it that was um, that was a powerful moment of uh, of, of reality for some reason. Um, so anyway, yeah, and I mean, we we do. Um, I think. Um, you know, we do offer new ideas, new visions, uh, you know, so that we can really rethink everything. And, um, 
you know, so thank you for, for everything you, you've done out there as well. You know, all we can do is plant the seeds. And, um, you know, uh, while we might not see everything we'd like to see in our lifetime, you know, maybe we will, um, you know, maybe in the generations that come, you know, uh, we will have left them something to, um, you know, to to use to um, show show the way forward, I guess. Mm-hmm. I hope so. All right. Well, Trista, thank you so much. Um, you, uh, you know, I hope you feel better and uh, you go get a good night's sleep. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, I'll send you that ISIS stuff. You'll have it when you wake up in the morning. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. You're the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Um, all bye-bye. right, friends. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for staying tuned in with us, uh, especially through that little technical glitch. I don't know what happened, but um, uh, thank you for staying there uh, so we could wrap up the show appropriately. Uh, and please do go to um, uh, girlgod.com, uh, I believe it probably is. I'm sure if you just put in Girl God, you will find the books. Uh, you know, the anthologies. I mean, they're wonderful, wonderful books. They're, you know, so many of them are pieces of art as well as, um, you know, such wisdom. You know, they're, they're great uh, for adults and children alike. Uh, the anthologies, of course, are, are more for adults. But, um, um, you know, you owe it to yourself to go take a look at those. All right. Well, that about does it for me for today. Uh, I have to go out and um, whack some weeds and do some gardening. Um, But I will be back with you um, on Friday, uh, June 7th uh, with Luke Eastwood. I'm sorry, June 12th with Luke Eastwood, and we're going to be talking about taking a Gnostic path. Uh, You have a wonderful week. Uh, Stay safe. And... um, be thinking about uh, embodying Medusa. I think that's what we all need in these days ahead. All right. Well, uh, until we meet again, may Isis embrace you in her golden wings. Bye for now. <laughs>